Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. The story of Esther is one of the most beautiful and profound narratives in all of Scripture. In this episode, we explore how the characters in Esther are an important illustration of truth for our everyday lives. We will begin by working through some historical context that can add layers to how we perceive this story. So let's look at Esther, and we'll go do the first couple of verses here, and then I'll tell you the historical uh, setting, and then we'll kind of go through the story, which will be pretty familiar, or we'll just read excerpts to get the story in place. And then we'll make some applications. So, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the day of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all the officials and servants. Okay, so let me give you the background of Esther here, uh, the historical background. So by the by virtue of the fact that they're explaining about which Ahasuerus this is, what does that tell you? Yeah, it's more than one, okay? This is actually really helpful to me because uh, a lot of this exile and return stuff is new to me, so I've, I've had to really struggle trying to understand how it all fits together. And last week, you might remember, we went through the book of Ezra, and Ezra has an Ahasuerus in it. And it says Ahasuerus and Xerxes uh, wrote letters to stop the building of the temple, and then Darius went in the archives and found out that Cyrus had said, go build the temple, and so he reissued the order and said, go build the temple. Well, that was real confusing to me because the way the big kings go, it goes Cyrus, who is also probably the same person as Darius the Mede. Cyrus was the guy who conquered Babylon, the handwriting on the wall, tonight you will fall. The Babylonians fell to Cyrus that night. And so that was in 539 B.C., and uh, he's the same guy that was Daniel in the lion's den. That's Cyrus. And then the next big king is Darius. And Darius is the one that said, go build that temple. And then after Darius, the, big, the next big king you have is Xerxes, who's also called Ahasuerus in this book of Esther. And then you have Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the main character, king character in Nehemiah. And so uh, what, what happened last week is it said Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes wrote letters saying stop the temple. And so it was stopped. Sorry, some people from Samaria and their surrounding area stopped, sent letters into uh, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes said, stop building the temple. And so they, they said, yeah, yes, stop, because this is a rebellious city. And then Darius overthrew that, which was very con- uh, confusing to me because uh, uh, Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus came after Darius. Well, there's more than one Ahasuerus, as we can see here. And there were two minor kings between Cyrus and Darius uh, who who go by names like Smyrnus and Cambius, Cambyses or something like that. And even if you go on uh, Wikipedia and look up uh, Smyrnus, Smyrtus, he has like five other names. So these, these kings had all kinds of names. And, you know, they're nothing like each other. Kind of like we call Deutschland Germany. You ever wonder how Deutschland turned into Germany? What is that? Well, different languages have different names for things. So... This is the Ahasuerus that's the big one, the Xerxes. Now, so 
uh, Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, that's Cyrus. And then you have these two little guys that stopped building the temple. And, you can, and they, they never really got a control on power. And you can understand they wouldn't want anything to threaten their power. While they, and then Darius comes in. He's, he's called Darius the Great. And Darius says, hey, you guys start building that temple again. Now, just a little bit about Darius the Great. He was a really big king. He was the ruler of the world. And Darius the Great, you can go uh, look us up on the internet. I, I encourage you to. He did a road sign that you can still see today. He made a road sign that you can see today if you could go to Iran. It's called the Behistun Inscription. And this Behistun Inscription, B-I-H-I-S-T-U-N. Uh, this, this thing is about the size of Mount Rushmore. It's about 300 feet off the ground, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. And in this thing, it's on, the, it's on a, a trade route near a place, I think, called Beaston or whatever. And up there, it's got a giant mural, like a, a, a frieze, you know, a ch- chiseled into the stone. And it's got Darius and, and, a, and a row of characters that are from countries he has subdued including Greece. And then it's got all this writing up here about all his campaigns and how great he is and how he's conquered people and stuff with writing that's too small to see from the road. I'm not sure exactly what was going on there, but uh, the point is I'm great and wonderful and everybody from now on is going to remember me, which worked, I guess, you know. It's, it's still uh, part of what gives Darius his legacy. Well, Darius... Uh, was a guy who had conquered all these other kingdoms. He was the ruler of the known world. And uh, Greece was a little bit of a problem to him. And so he invaded Greece at a place called Marathon. Anybody ever heard of a Marathon? Okay. He lost that battle. Uh, he outnumbered the Greeks 10 to 1. And, they, and he lost that battle, and the guy ran back to tell him they'd won and you know, died in 26 point whatever miles from Marathon to Athens. So, so that, that's commemorated by that thing, because that's the first time the p- balance of power started to tip. That's the same guy. Well, his son didn't like that very much. So he, he, Darius started uh, the whole idea of going back again, and, and, and his son Xerxes continued that. And uh, uh, reports started filtering back to Greece that there were mounds of food supplies that looked like mountains. They were blocking out the sun, okay, because they were getting ready to invade. Because, you know, I think it was like 100,000 people invaded Marathon and 10,000 Greeks met them, something like this. This is in 490 B.C. was Marathon. And so in 480, uh, they, they invaded again. This time, they estimated 2 million people that they invaded from Persia to, to Greece. So if you've watched the movie 300... Yeah, okay, I saw a lot of enthusiastic nods, okay. This is about the battle of Thermopylae, which is called the Greek Alamo. Because the Greeks didn't really believe this was going to happen. I think they had 400 ships, 2 million men, 400 ships to supply the army with this giant you know, mounds of food supplies. And the Greeks met them at this mountain pass called Thermopylae, or sorry, yeah, pass between the, the sea and the mountains and held them off for a few days so the Greeks could kind of hastily assemble their defenses. 
And the Greeks ended up defeating their ships, so they had no way to supply the army. And it was a, it was a complete devastating defeat for the Persians at the end of the day. And basically, from that point on, the balance of power tipped from east to west. So in ancient history, Xerxes is considered the guy where, where the balance of power went from east to west. And only about 100 years later, Alexander the Great's going to go in and conquer it all together. So Xerxes is this guy Ahasuerus, and he has to suffer, you know, he's the guy that puts up on the billboard, I'm Mr. Wonderful, I control the world, I've got all these other people I control, and he goes and just gets his tail beat off completely. So what would you do if you're king, this massive king, and that happens? Well, you would throw a huge party, right? Because you've got to reinforce your greatness in the local community. And so that's what he does. So um, uh, let's just keep going here. So in those days, uh, let's see here, uh, verse 4, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. After you've suffered a huge, humiliating defeat, you've got to reinstitute all the patronage around you to make sure you're secure as a king. So he does that, 180-day party. And in this particular party, normally you would have to drink when the king drank and eat when the king eats because, you know, everything's about the king. And he said, everybody just drink and eat whenever you want to. So he's actually giving some uh, tremendous sort of uh, uh, freedom even during this time period. So, the ten, verse 10 here. On the seventh day, when his heart of the king was merry with wine, which we would say when he was drunk, he commanded these different people, these eunuchs, these ubiquitous eunuchs that kind of run everything, uh, who served... Uh, and they, they, You always had eunuchs in the harem. That was always the case. So, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show his beauty to the people in the... And the officials, now Queen Vashti had the women going on in a different deal. So you had the men's raucous kind of party going for 180 days and the women's raucous party going for 180 days. And probably if you had a woman come before a raucous party of men to show her beauty, it was not going to be, um, you know, to look at how wonderful her clothes are, okay? It was probably going to be something lewd. And so she said, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, if she had done it, she might have ended up with her head on a platter. You don't really know what's, how this is going to work. But he, since she disobeyed the king's command, everybody kind of freaks out. So um, he says, what are we going to do? So you go down to verse 19, and these uh, eunuchs said, Well, let a royal decree go out, and let it re- be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so it will not be altered. Because once you make a law in the Persians and the Medes, you can't alter it. This was one of the things they did to keep uh, kings from being capricious. Remember when uh, uh, Darius the Mede or Cyrus uh, gave the order that whoever uh, would not worship, or, sorry, whoever prayed to anybody but the king would be thrown in a lion's den. Remember that? And then he realized he had been taken and uh, tricked and he, he was trying to overturn his own law and couldn't figure out a way to do it. Well, that's because you can't alter the law once it's, once it's made. That'll be important here in a minute. So let her give another position uh, or give her position to somebody better than him. And then verse 20, when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both the great and small. 
So I think we probably ought to start a men's movement here to try to get this law passed in America as well. That we have, uh, so, uh, well anyway, so apparently this, this slight of the king affected every male ego in the whole country. And, uh, you know, you can kind of understand if you had this giant invasion where you're going to make a point once and for all and you get absolutely whipped that everybody would be feeling a little down. So there is, this is a sensitive time. So this happens. So as a result of this, they have a uh, beauty contest. And the way the beauty contest works is in verse 12 of chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 12, they select all these women. They have a beauty contest. If you make it through and win the beauty contest, then you get one night with the king. So verse 12, each young woman's turn came to go into the king, Ahasuerus, after she had completed 12 months preparation. So this is how the preparation works. So according to the regulations of the women, uh, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying the women. So you spent six months in a beauty salon, beauty spa, getting ready for this one night. So thus prepared, each young woman went into the king. She was given whether she, whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And in the evening when she went, in the morning she returned. Uh, so to the king's eunuch that kept the concubines and when she would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So if the, if the king can't remember your name, you never see him again. And I read one thing that said that these women uh, would live like uh, widows the rest of their life. They, they, they had this one shot and, that, and then that was, uh, that, was, that was it for the rest of their life. So it's kind of an interesting beauty contest. But, you know, the way this whole thing works is just having this one opportunity. The king was supposed to make you happy for the rest of your life. Remember Nehemiah? He was really concerned about being sad in the presence of the king. Remember why that was? What was it? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Because if you're in the presence of the king, that, that in and of itself should just make you elated just to be in his presence. So if you're sad, it's a slide on the king. He's afraid he's going to lose his head. Okay? So that, that's, that's the way this works. It's, it's all about just the king. He makes you happy. That one night's the rest for... And, you know, it would be interesting... Um, how many things in our world promise this? Have you ever thought of uh, like something like a happy meal? Shouldn't a happy meal, if it really works, shouldn't it make you happy for the rest of your life? You know, I'm, I'm 40 years old and I think back, yeah, but I got that toy. <laughs> so anyway, so the, it turns out the king did remember Esther's name. She, she was the number one, so she wins. She wins the whole deal and she gets to uh, be queen. So chapter 2, verse 20, now Esther had not revealed her family and her people because her, her, I think it's her cousin, I think Mordecai's her cousin if I got the family deal right, but had kind of adopted her as her daughter because she's an orphan. So it's a, this is like a Disney movie, right? The orphan girl from a kind of an off deal, now she's the queen. Mordecai said, just don't tell them where you're from. So uh, in verse 21, in those days when Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh. I wonder why Big Than is not a popular name. Isn't that a cool name? Big Than. Big Than. So uh, they were doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They're going to kill him. 
So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told the queen Esther. Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, and an inquiry was made in the matter. It was confirmed. Both were hanged on the gallows, as written in the book of Chronicles in presence of the king. So sitting in the king's gate means that you're one of his administration, because this is where the official business of all these ancient kingdoms was done, in the gate. If you're going to meet with the king, you're going to meet with one of the king's counselors, you're going to uh, do some business, you do it in the gate. If I remember right, uh, Boaz, when he does the thing where he gives the sandal to buy Ruth, uh, is in the king's gate, I think. I should have looked at that. But that this is typically where uh, this has happened. So Mordecai is now a, uh, an official, and I think Esther got him that job. So now, chapter 3, verse 1, after these king things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat of all the princes who were with him. Now, we don't have time to go back and really delve into this, but it would be worth studying on your own. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul has an an engagement with uh, Agag the king. And this is the one where he's supposed to kill everything, and he doesn't. And Agag, he leaves alive, and Samuel comes in and ends up executing him. Well, that sets up kind of a fight between Samuel and Agag and the Agagites that kind of trickles throughout Scripture. Well, guess which tribe Mordecai is from? Benjamin. So this is here it is again. So we've got now uh, this, this same thing coming up. And this is the way the biblical timelines work. We tend to think as Greeks in kind of straight lines. But uh, the, the biblical narrative really cycles. The same kind of thing keeps happening over and over and over again. We see a prophecy, and it'll actually be fulfilled multiple times. And so do these, so do these contests. Okay, So here it is again, and we're going to see Saul and Agag once again. So, uh, he advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So now he's the number one guy. And uh, so everybody that served within the king's gate in the administration, in the, you know, power structure, bowed and paid homage to Haman because the king had, had, had ordered that that should be the case. So, but Mordecai wouldn't bow and pay homage. Now, it's not real clear to anybody why that is. But uh, it's not sure because it's not like a... Uh, it's not an idol or an image, but he, his rationale is that he said, I'm Jewish, I can't do that. Well, whatever his rationale was, it was related to being Jewish. So verse 6, um, verse 5, Haman saw Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Haman was filled with wrath. What does that tell us what kind of fellow Haman is? When he's just really consumed because somebody won't bow and scrape to him. A little bit of an ego, right? Okay, so and Haman, but Haman is also a big thinker because uh, he probably just could have had Mordecai killed at that point in time because he's the head prince and people's lives don't matter that much in this time period. You know, uh, if you, if you really feel bad, have a bad day, and killing somebody makes you feel better, it's okay. You know, it's kind of the way they work, and so uh, we'll see that in a little bit. But he said, no, uh, verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Because if, the, if his rationale for not bowing and scraping is, I'm a Jew, therefore what am I going to do? Kill all the Jews. Okay, so he says, I'm going to kill them all. So he comes up with this plot. So in verse 8, he, King Haman says to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people 
He doesn't name who they are, just a certain people. Scattered, dispersed among the people in your province and your kingdom. They're all spread out all over the place. And their laws are different than all the other people's. They don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it to the king's treasuries. Now, I looked up 10,000 talents of silver, and one of the places I looked up said that's about $2 billion in today's money. So that would be a lot of money for us, not much for the U.S. government. But, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, ancient times, maybe it's still a lot of money. And, of course, where's Haman going to get all this money? He's going to take it from the Jews, right? It's interesting how similar this is to uh, what Hitler did. It's the same. It's the same kind of thing over and over again uh, that that you have this this cycle of let's get rid of all the Jews. So King says that's fine. He hands him the signet ring. Now sometimes sometimes this. confuses people, but I'm going to give you my interpretation. Look at King uh, verse 11. The king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Now later we're going to hear the king say, what, whatever you want up to half the kingdom. Now if that, that was us and someone said that to us, what would we say? Okay, I'll take half the kingdom, right? That's what we would say. It's a good. I'll take half the kingdom. Well, I think the way this works, this is my interpretation. No, the money's yours. You can have half the kingdom. I think the way this works is you could say, I'll take half the kingdom. And the king would say, okay, it's yours. And the next day he would say, I decided I want your head on a platter. And I'll take that half the kingdom back. You see what I'm saying? The full expectation is, you know, if, if being in the presence of the king for one night is supposed to keep you happy all the rest of the life, then when he says do with it whatever your place, the full expectation is what? Oh, of course, what I want to do with it is give it to you. You see, you see how this works? So I don't think, I don't think this is like uh, we would think about it. This is like a Near Eastern politeness where it, you, you don't ever actually accept that invitation. So then they wrote letters, verse 13. They sent couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews. How about those adjectives? destroy, kill, annihilate. So destroy, you know, that means, you know, make it all rubble. Kill, there aren't any left. Annihilate, not just some, all. That's a nice string of adjectives, right? And they decided to do it on this certain day that they cast by lots. The lots were called poor, P-U-R. That's how, what the lots were. So this is how they chose things. Okay, we're going to cast lots for which day it's on that day. So this is a certain day in the month of Adar. So they issued this document and all the Jews are like, what, 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 what happened? You know, we've, we've been here for, uh, let's see, how long would they have been here now? We're in the, we're in, uh, we're in the uh, Xerxes 485, 465. So yeah, they've been here 100 years now. They've got several generations that have been here. S- some have gone back. Some have gone back under Darius, right? Esther, Zerubbabel, those, uh, sorry, Ezra, Zerubbabel, those guys. But many have stayed. And they're like, well, we're, we're, we're citizens here. What are you talking about? Why are you doing this? So 
then Mordecai sends a, a message to Esther and says, Go into the king. This is in chapter 4 now. Go in the king, make supplicate, verse 8, go into the king to make supplication to him and plead to him for her people. And here's what Esther says, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called but has been one but has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So apparently, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the chief wife, but even if you're the chief wife, you may go long periods of time where you don't see the king. And I don't know if that's because it's the new people coming in or the ones he can remember the name. Maybe he has a list that he keeps and somebody. I don't know how that works. But uh, she, she hasn't even seen him for 30 days. And she says, yeah, I, I hadn't been called for 30 days. I don't know why. If I go in, he doesn't extend the scepter. I'm dead. So Mordecai told them to answer Esther because this is all going through a... Uh, uh, couriers here by messenger service. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than any of the other Jews. So in other words, his logic is you're going to die anyway. So if you die first, it's not that big a deal. Uh, verse 14, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. So Mordecai has complete faith that the Jews will be saved. He's just not sure from where. Why would he have that faith? Yeah, Abrahamic covenant. I'll make of you a great nation. And at this point in time, all the provinces would include Israel and Judea, right? The people have gone back, but they're still under the supervision of Persia. So yeah, if you can't wipe out everything, then the, then the Abrahamic covenant can't take place. But you and your father's house will perish. This is, the way, this is the way Mordecai believes. If, if, you don't, if you're not faithful, you'll pay, perish. And then he says, yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe this is why you're the queen. Maybe not. You know, maybe you won't be faithful, but maybe it is. So Esther tells Mordecai, uh, go, go fast and pray for me. I'll put something together. Now, by the way, uh, Esther's real name is Hadassah. Uh, but she, that's her Jewish name, and her, uh, her, um, her um, Persian name is uh, Esther, which comes from Ishtar. Ishtar is like a Persian goddess or something. And uh, I, I didn't check. I have a friend who has just like Mark. He has a regular name, but he, he told me, he, had a, he said, Mordecai is my Jewish name. I can dedicate this to him, I guess. And I don't know, maybe they still do that today. You know, I'm Fred, but my Jewish name is uh, Ezekiel or something like that. I don't know. But that, that was the practice back in those days. So Esther is her Persian name. So Esther then goes through this elaborate thing. She goes in and uh, she doesn't get killed. He extends the scepter. She goes in in all her best clothes and everything. And, and, and the king knows something really big is up because he says... You know, well, what do you want? She took a risk for her life. She said, I want you to come to a banquet. Well, okay. So then she goes to, so she has one banquet. And then at that banquet, she asks him to come to another banquet. So I, I suppose this is kind of an Eastern thing where um, she understands the king and how he works and kind of buttering him up and that, so that sort of thing. So the only people that come to this banquet are the king and Haman. 
And uh, so the night before the second banquet, uh, Haman is just uh, up just beside himself and he says, I have been invited to dinner with the king, just me and the queen, just me, not anybody else, not some 180 day thing where everybody gets to come, just me and the king, but I really can't enjoy it because Mordecai is still alive. My, I can't enjoy life while Mordecai is alive. So they said, well, why don't you build some gallows and hang him on it? He said, that is a great idea. So he has these gallows built. So chapter 6 comes, and that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the books of the records of the chronicles. They're read before the king. Now, uh, we tend to think that kings maybe just uh, live a life of luxury, but if you're going to have a big uh, kingdom like this with all these different people groups and everything... Uh, you, you may well learn all the languages of the people groups. You're constantly hearing cases from people because that's the way you build loyalty is by deciding things for people and granting favors and stuff like that. You probably travel around to different places all the time. Uh, the, in the Holy Roman Empire, which uh, was typically run out of Vienna, they would, have, they would raise these guys to know like nine languages fluently or something like that, you know, a large number, because they're constantly seeing people all the time. That's the way they held the kingdom together. So this guy's working, you know. He, he's working, and he's got his lawyers in, reading the chronicles of, uh, of his, of his uh, administration. So it was found, so they happened to read the <coughs> event that happened in the gate where Mordecai had told of Big Thana and Teresh, Two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, now what honor or dignity was bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended them said, nothing's been done for him. The king said, well, who's in the court right now? So now Haman had just entered the court, uh, outer court of the king's palace, to suggest the king hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. So the king's servants said, well, Haman's here, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman thought in his heart, well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man on whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king said to Haman, Hurry and take the robe and horse and do as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Let nothing be done of all you have spoken. Now, I, you, don't you imagine that Haman was saying, Thus delights this the king does for all. You know, can you imagine a more reluctant guy? So Haman took the horse, arrayed Mordecai, went and did it, and then went home mourning and with his head covered. <laughs> And he told his friends, and they said, "Oh, uh-oh! If Mordecai's a Jew, then you're done. This, this—they're omen people, you know." So, the, so, the, so then Haman goes to this banquet immediately thereafter, and finally the king says, "What? Come on, tell me what you want. I, I know, I know you did. You came in, risked your life. You had a banquet. Now we got another banquet. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it?" And have you ever done this to your husbands? Just butter him up, butter him up. And finally, he says, "What?" Okay, that's kind of it. So then she says, I would like to live and not die. 
Now, you think the king was expecting that. She, he probably thought she wanted a, her room remodeled or something. Don't you imagine? New chariot. I, I don't like my attendants. I want somebody else. I want one of my relatives to be given some kind of a, a promotion. I would like to live, me and my people. Because this wicked Haman is trying to kill all of us because that proclamation, you know, the 10,000 talent things, that he that was us. That was me. I'm Jewish. The king is ticked. He goes into the garden to kind of collect himself. Haman is done. So he, he uh, apparently just kind of goes and grabs uh, Esther's in some way uh, or, or, or is you know, leaning over or something just trying to get her to uh, you know, intervene for him. And the king walks back in and he's in a compromising position. He says, so you're going to rape my wife too? And, and so... Uh, as the words left the king's mouth, verse 8, uh, they covered Haman's face. So they're like, oh, you're dead. So he goes from like the noble prince, you know, this is who he does, the king delights to honor, to having his face covered in a few hours. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs, says to the king, look, the gallows 50 cubits high. Haman made for Mordecai, the guy that saved your life, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And the king said, oh, hang him on it. So they hang Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath was subsided. So it's just like taking aspirin from one of these ancient kings. I feel better now. <laughs> so then, you know, you can't undo the law, right? Just like you couldn't undo the, the lion's den thing. can't undo the law. So what they did is they wrote a new law that said the Jews can defend themselves on this day that they selected by poor. So what ends up happening is the Jews end up with this great victory. Everybody that tries to take their possessions and annihilate them actually get annihilated. So there's this little civil war thing, and the Jews come out on top. So um, they call the name of this Purim, after the poor that's uh, the lot selected the day. And they set up this uh, holiday from now on where they honor this day of poor Mordecai becomes a big official in the uh, king's palace so that's the story this teaching will continue in the following episode thanks for listening to the yellow balloons podcast if you want more information on adopting a god-centered perspective visit our website at yellowballoons.net and if you have any questions related to what you just heard we would love to hear from you please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net thanks for listening 